Proverbs are built uh, to be usually true. Some of them are always true, but most of them kind of fall in that usually true category uh, of um, kind of general ways in which the world operates. Uh, That's going to be important because the final half of this chapter is going to fall in that category, though the first half is probably not going to quite so much. Give you a second to get there. Again, no pages turning. The world of electronic devices. Proverbs chapter 16, starting in verse 1. The plans of the heart belong to man, but the answer of the tongue is from the Lord. All the ways of a man are pure in his own eyes, but the Lord weighs the spirit. Commit your work to the Lord, and your plans will be established. The Lord has made everything for its purpose, even the wicked for the day of trouble. Everyone who is arrogant in heart is an abomination to the Lord. Be assured he will not go unpunished. By steadfast love and faithfulness, iniquity is atoned for. And by the fear of the Lord, one turns away from evil. When a man's ways please the Lord, he makes even his enemies to be at peace with him. Better is a little with righteousness than great revenues with injustice. The heart of man plans his way, but the Lord establishes his steps. An oracle is on the lips of a king. His mouth does not sin in judgment. A just balance and scales are the Lord's. All the weights in the bag are his work. It is an abomination to kings to do evil, for the throne is established by righteousness. Righteous lips are the delight of a king, and he loves him who speaks what is right. A king's wrath It's a messenger of death, and a wise man will appease it. In the light of a king's face there is life, and his favor is like the clouds that bring the spring rain. How much better to get wisdom than gold? To get understanding is to be chosen rather than silver? The highway of the upright turns aside from evil. Whoever guards his way preserves his life. Pride goes before destruction. And a haughty spirit before a fall. It's better to be of a lowly spirit with the poor than to divide the spoil with the proud. Whoever gives thought to the word will discover good. And blessed is he who trusts in the Lord. The wise of heart is called discerning, and sweetness of speech increases persuasiveness. Good sense is a fountain of life to him who has it, but the instruction of fools is folly. The heart of the wise makes his speech judicious and adds persuasiveness to his lips. Gracious words are like a honeycomb, sweetness to the soul and health to the body. There is a way that seems right to a man, 
but its end is the way to death. A worker's appetite works for him. His mouth urges him on. A worthless man plots evil and his speech is like a scorching fire. A dishonest man spreads strife and a whisperer separates close friends. A man of violence entices his neighbor and leads him in a way that is not good. Whoever winks his eyes plans dishonest things. He who purses his lips brings evil to pass. Gray hair is a crown of glory. It is gained in a righteous life. Whoever is slow to anger is better than the mighty, and he who rules his spirit than he who takes a city. A lot is cast into the lap, but its every decision is from the Lord. You got to hear my favorite verse in all the scriptures right there, right? Gray hair is a crown of glory. Gained a righteous life, yes. Going to claim that one right there. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word, and we do ask that you would speak to us. We believe you. You've said your law is better than life. You've said that your word never goes out and returns void. You've said that parts of it are very complicated. I think many of this fits if we're going to try to take it lump sum like this. And so we ask that you would speak and that we would hear. We know that's only possible with your spirit working within. And so we pray that he would. O Spirit of God, work in our hearts, we ask in Christ's name. Amen. The difference between facts and significance. It's one of those things you, you may have never really thought about. The difference between statement and meaning. The difference between the what... And the so what? It's the difference between me saying to you, baby snakes are actually oftentimes more dangerous than adults because they don't know how to control their venom glands. And sometimes when they strike, it's a dry strike. And sometimes they empty all of their venom in one go. So if you get bit by a baby copperhead, it could kill you on the spot. That's a fact. If you've just been bitten when I tell you that, it has very different significance. You understand there's a difference between the two. A fact is I do not know how to tie a proper belay knot. That's for when you go rappelling, you know, where the person sits in the harness and they go falling down the cliff and the little rope holds them and the person takes the rope and lets them down. I have no idea how to tie that knot. That's a fact. I can't tie it to save my life. It has important significance if you're the other person on the end of the rope. (laughs) Right now, it has no significance to any of us because, thank the Lord, I'm not roped into anyone because they would be dead. It's the difference between knowing what raw chicken looks like and knowing that raw chicken is what you just ate. It's the difference between knowing that France scores lots of goals and knowing that they just have. 
There's my World Cup line for all of you. <laughs> and be at peace. I don't have my phone out. I have no idea what the score actually is. I'm just trolling all of you people that are like, oh, no, we ruined the score. You knew France was going to score. Too often, though, we, we, we forget this when it comes time for us to deal with the scriptures. We forget that there is a difference between facts and significance. We forget that there's a difference between knowledge and wisdom, between what the scripture says and the so what of what the scripture says. And we here in America are particularly bad at both of these. Sometimes the Reformed tradition has excelled in having facts with no significance. Where we do brilliant jobs of transmitting data, of raising up brilliant scholars that have no impact on their life. It has no no consequence for them. They may not even believe it. One of my favorite books on how to pastor in my office, if you want to read it, you can. The first third of it is an argument for why you must be a Christian in order to be a pastor. Knowing the Bible is not enough. By the way, that was in Scotland, Presbyterian land, right? Too often, actually, in evangelicalism in America, though, we actually go the other way, where we take significance with no facts. (laughs) I know what it means. I know what it means to me, having no clue what the scriptures actually say. We've divorced the two too often. We either cram our minds full of little bits of data, or we let our heart run wild without it being informed. Proverbs chapter 16 is an incredible combination of the two. Proverbs are hard to preach. Honestly, they're hard to read in large chunks because the structure, if there is structure to the chapter, is very complicated. Oftentimes it's very subtle. Part of what this chapter is doing, though, is showing that the merger of the information and the consequence for your life. And it's all within one larger scheme, one larger context, one larger idea. Proverbs chapter 16 is about God's sovereignty. And if you're in the Reformed tradition, that's your heritage, you're like, oh, yay, that's great. The funny thing is, is a lot of us don't actually know how to define that word. Oh, good, you've thrown out a a 25-cent reformed word, but I, I don't understand what that means. Most of us are not from countries that have kings and queens. We have a couple that are from England and maybe somebody from Canada. Canada has a queen. You may not know that. It is a monarchy. It's not a republic. But most of us in America don't think about sovereignty. We don't think about kings and queens. And oftentimes, even when it comes time to think about God from that perspective, we kind of forget or maybe get a little fuzzy in our definition. God's sovereignty, when we talk about it in theological terms, is uh, his right and his ability to control everything. And I love how the chapter starts. It it starts with an illustration to kind of help us wrap our mind around that so we understand what sovereign control looks like. And it's a moment that all of us can understand. All of us can relate to. It, It is a moment that if you are a man, 
Think about when you're married, man. Think about when you were first married, your first year of marriage. It is this proverb. Or if you're not in that category, think about your entire middle school career. Both of those. (laughs) The plans of the heart belong to the man, but the answer of the tongue is from the Lord. And I'm going to put that in slightly different verbiage so you understand what it means. You can perfectly craft what you want to say, but it is shocking how differently it can come out. Why? Because you can spend all of the time that you want thinking about, mapping out what you want to say, trying to figure out how to articulate it, but then when the words come out, you're like, what on earth am I saying? That's not what I planned. I didn't mean it that way. No, I I was trying to say the dress looked good. I didn't mean to say it. No, give me the words back. That's not the way it was supposed to come out. He's actually starting with an illustration to say, look, you want to see how sovereign God is and how puny you are. You can't even control the short distance between your brain and your mouth. It's only a couple of inches, and yet it's immeasurably large. God's sovereign over that. He's the one that controls that. He's big enough that this thing that mystifies people, the ability to say it the way I wanted to say it, God is in charge of. In fact, actually, this opening illustration of the tongue is then expanded to show God's control over all areas of life in verses 3 and 9. Commit your work to the Lord and your plans will be established. Why? Commit it to God because God is the one who is over, uh, he's in charge of all of creation. He's the one that determines whether or not plans go awry. It doesn't matter how much you think you can't fully execute it. Now, if you think less, it's going to be far less likelihood that it will be successful. Most people know plans arrived at off the cuff are oftentimes quite poor. But God is the one who's in charge of that. Verse 9 intensifies it. The heart of man plans his way, but the Lord establishes his steps. It, it doesn't fully matter how much you try to script your life. You cannot succeed at that because you are not big enough. You're not strong enough. You're not mighty enough. If you are in this verse 32 coming up, 31, excuse me, if you're in that category of being the righteous life, having the gray hair, think about the journey that your life has taken. Think about the last two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine decades uh, to get you to where you are now. And think about how different that path was than what you intended. I mean, we, we ask this question all the time to our children. What do you want to be when you grow up? How many of us wanted to be astronauts? None of us have been that I'm aware of. If you have been, you need to tell me that story later. (laughs) It doesn't matter what our heart plans. Our our steps don't ultimately belong to us. They belong to the Lord. He's the one who sets the paths. He's the one who sets the ways. He is the one who plans out our lives for us. 
And honestly, if we're going to think through this and be realistic, again, let's not just kind of take pat Bible answers. Let's actually use our minds that God gave us. We're going to have, some of us are going to have a tough time with that. I mean, if anybody's raised anywhere near South Carolina, you should have a major problem with that. I mean, we were raised with a, you don't tell me what to do. I mean, we don't like it, we'll leave. We'll take our ball and go to another country. That's what we're planning to do. We we want to be the boss of our own lives. We want to be in charge of everything. Who gives God the right to determine my life for me? I mean, how is it that he has the ability to do that? I mean, he's God and all, but that doesn't seem fair, does it? Oh, yeah, verse 4. That's right, it answers. The Lord has made everything. Oh, yeah, he's creator. (laughs) Oh, yeah, that's right. He made it all. Oh, and not only did he make it, but he made it for its purpose. He's the one who made it. He's the one who designed everything. He's the one who gets to determine what it's used for. You want a lesson in this? Try to play with Play-Doh with small children. Mm, That's a good one. They're going to make a shape, and you're like, oh, that looks like a lovely ball. It's not a ball, Daddy. That's a bear. I'm sorry. I didn't pick up on that one. You can't roll it around like that. That's not how bears operate. You need to have it bounce around like a bear bounces. Fair enough. You made it. It's your imagination. You're the one who has responsibility and authority over it. If you want to make your bear look like a ball of Play-Doh and bounce around the table, that's what you get to do. It's your prerogative. Now, God, being infinitely more powerful, doesn't simply craft things with Play-Doh that doesn't look right. By the word of his power, he crafts things out of his perfect imagination into reality. And so when it comes time for him to determine the purpose of a thing, if a bear is supposed to have really sharp teeth and eat berries, he can make a bear with really sharp teeth that eats berries because that's his prerogative. If he wants to make us in his image yet weaker than angels, he can do that. That's his prerogative. He's in charge. In fact, actually, in the end of verse 4 is one of the more troubling verses in Scripture. If he wants to make the wicked for the day of trouble, he can do that. He can do that. Because he's created. It's his prerogative. If he wants to use the wicked to glorify his justice, to display that he is a righteous judge, that he does not turn a blind eye to sin forever, if he wants to use the wicked to showcase the scope of his patience, he can do that because he made them. And I like how the proverb is kind of structured so far. Those are all facts. Those are all statements in Scripture. You want to see how lack of sovereignty you have, you can't control your tongue. You want to see how God is sovereign, he controls your path and your ways. You want to see how God is sovereign, why can he be sovereign? Because he's creator. Those are all facts, but it doesn't stop with that. It doesn't stop with the what. It continues on to the so what. And the problem with that are verses 2 and 5. 
All the ways of a man are pure in his own eyes, but the Lord weighs the Spirit. All the ways of a man are pure in his own eyes. I, I love this one. Again, put kind of maybe a little bit differently and much less classy. Uh, we're far more generous for ourselves than with anybody else, and God knows that. When we go to consider ourselves, we, we consider ourselves far better than what we consider anyone else. It's one of my favorite lines. I think it's C.S. Lewis in terms of talking about what it means to hate the sin but love the sinner. Just look at how you treat yourself. <laughs> oh, I hate that I do that, but I love myself. You see, the problem is that God is sovereign. He's the one who is in charge of all of creation. He is the one who has made humanity. He is the one who humanity belongs to. And he is the one who has established what is right and wrong and not the creatures. And the problem is he knows our insides. He knows what no one else knows. He knows those secret desires. You know, the ones that you would be really embarrassed if anybody found out about. I mean, you know the ones I'm talking about. The ones that if anybody knew about them, you would move by the end of the week. He knows those. He knows the foolish things you did when you were a teenager. He knows that secret sin that you've been hiding that you've been secreting away, that you think, well, nobody knows that. Maybe some of you really have a big-time problem with that. Maybe some of you have done things that would have landed you in jail if you ever got caught for one. He knows. He knows the secret sin. And the problem here we see in verse 2 is that we look at ourselves and we see purity because our standards are poor. It's really, really poor. But God looks and sees accurately. For those that have ever spent time traveling like in a a severely um, impoverished country, you sit down with the folks that live there, brothers and sisters in Christ, and their standard of living is so low, their body has adapted to living on food like that that's cooked and prepared in ways that we would never think of eating. You sit down at a meal, and they get thrilled because it's a feast. And we sit there and think, oh, man, that's food poisoning waiting to happen. Their standards are skewed because of what they live in. The lifestyle that they're accustomed to, they don't don't have clear vision over, you know, that's mostly raw chicken. And I've had salmonella twice in other countries from doing this. You don't. They don't understand the difference because they're so accustomed to it. And this is what the Proverbs are saying, how we treat our own sin. We look at our own sin and we say, surely I'm not that bad. Well, of course you don't think you're that bad. (laughs) You're evaluating it from your own perspective. The problem is it doesn't match God's. He knows the heart. Verse 5 Everyone who is arrogant in heart is an abomination to the Lord. Be assured, he will not go unpunished. Left to its own end, that's not, I mean, that's a tough statement. But most of us will go, well, I'm not that arrogant. Wow. 
mean, follow that on the heels of verse 2. <laughs> Every man thinks he's pure. Oh, surely I'm not that arrogant. Maybe if you combine those two ideas together, you might want to reconsider your situation. If we're blind to our own sin, if we don't think our problems are that big, if we don't think they're that large, if we think everybody else has problems, oh, my friend, that's a struggle. I mean, think about this with how you deal with your spouse or your children or your friends or your neighbors or your sisters or brothers or coworkers or boss. How often do you find yourself thinking, man, they have so many problems. If they would just do this, 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 and maybe that, their life would be so much better because they're a hot mess and I'm not. I mean, the only real struggle I have in my life is them. Everyone who is arrogant in heart is an abomination to the Lord. Friends, I would suggest that is the definition of being arrogant in heart. To say, my problem is them. If the Lord would just fix them, if He would just correct them, I'm going to humbly suggest that 99.99999% of the time, I'm comfortable with that being a definition of what it means to be arrogant in heart. To suggest that I am so not the problem that if we can just correct the external person, then we're okay in the situation. The facts are that God is sovereign over creation. The so what is that is a massive problem for humans. Because we've all, just in these two verses, fallen short. You know how many other verses there are in the scriptures for us to fall short of? We were two. We failed two. We haven't gotten to the rest of the chapter yet. I mean, much less the part about the king that's coming up. The final verses, well. And then it turns to verse 6. By steadfast love and faithfulness, iniquity is atoned for. By the fear of the Lord, one turns away from evil. Even here, tucked away in the middle of the Proverbs in the Old Testament, I think we have this massive street sign flashing and pointing, a giant billboard pointing to the Lord Jesus. By steadfast love, faithfulness, iniquity is atoned for. What we've already determined, we don't fit those categories. I mean, if we're going to be honest, we've already determined that we fall in the category of those that are impure but think of others uh, incorrectly. We've already determined that we fall in the category of the arrogant of heart by nature. Prior to conversion, we both, we all fall in those categories. And so the idea of us being steadfast in love and being faithful to atone for sin is a problem. I mean, I'm not... 100%, you know, always in every situation, but I'm pretty sure if you're ever finding yourself in a situation where you're saying they're the problem, that's probably not going to fall under the category of steadfast love. Call me crazy. Call me Mr., you know, I only see things in black and white and no gray. But if you find yourself going, man, they're driving me crazy, they're the problem, they need to get fixed, I might suggest that's not faithfulness. 
loving them through that, that might be. Showing kindness and tenderness, that might be. Instead, it points to Christ, who in steadfast love and faithfulness, instead of putting us away, instead of shaming and shunning, instead of cutting us off, instead of removing us, what does he do? He bonds himself to us in his spirit forever. You realize that's what this table is going to be in just a minute? It's a physical action that is nourishing that spiritual reality where we are bonded to Christ in the spirit. If you are a child of God, if you are filled with Christ when you come to the table, you are feasting on his steadfast love. You are feasting on his faithfulness. You are celebrating that he became iniquity on your behalf so that you would never have to. How merciful is God? And I love that this section here, the first section of this proverb that's dealing with the the reality of life in God's kingdom, it doesn't just stop at conversion. You don't just get verse 6 and say, oh yeah, by the way, how do we get sins paid for? Okay, good, you had your sins paid for, now you can go live however you want. Go be a hellion, it doesn't matter. You've had your sins forgiven. You want to be just this, you know, wild and crazy person? It's fine. No. In fact, actually, God goes further and says, look, there are blessings that overflow with being part of this kingdom, being part of my people, being part of salvation. Verses 7 and 8. When a man's ways please the Lord, he makes even his enemies to be at peace with him. Look. Be saved in God's kingdom. Be transformed in God's kingdom. Then live according to the ethics of that kingdom and blessings will overflow. Now, I have known a couple of friends in the past, nobody in this room, that enjoy confrontation so much, they love their enemies more than their friends. Some of you may have had those friends that everyone they interact with, they interact with antagonistically because they love the challenge of it all. Take those people, exclude them from the next illustration. Most of us, we long for peace in the home. We long for peace in the workplace. We long for peace in our life. We, we long for the proper ordering of everything. And again, when you think of peace in the scriptures, do not think of the absence of conflict or the absence of war. That's the wrong definition. Peace in the Bible is things operating correctly. For many of you, that's why you like the idea of buying a new car, is that everything works correctly and nothing's going to break for a while. That's actually probably a better definition of peace than anything else in the New Testament. In how it's what the biblical New Testament portrait of peace is. Sorry, I said that wrong. It's the idea that everything's working correctly and not breaking. It's not fighting against itself. It's operating the way it's designed to operate. And you say, look, you, you live according to God's law after you've been saved, after you've been changed, regenerated, and transformed. Look, blessings will flow. Your life will begin to be structured in such a way that it will work correctly. 
But it's not going to be perfect this side of heaven, and that's okay. It's not designed to be. Otherwise, you wouldn't want to go to heaven. You'd think you'd mistaken it and already landed there. But you'll have blessings that come with it. You'll deal with your enemies differently. Your world will be ordered differently. Even going so far, verse 8, this is tremendous. Better is a little with righteousness, just a little, than great revenues with injustice. Look, it's better to be poor, dirt poor, and have righteousness. Why? Because your life will be better than to have more money. And this is an intriguing thing because I think your average American wants, on average, I would say one of two categories. They either want 20% more or all of it. And we probably vacillate between the two extremes. I would either like, at this given moment, a 20% pay raise to my salary, or I would like the lottery. One of the two. It's usually nothing kind of in between. I think about it. I mean, that's, that is your experience. You may not realize it. Go home, think about it. That's your experience. Most of the time, it's one of those two categories. And it's interesting. The Proverbs are saying, look, you want to have a joyful life? You want to have a life filled with abundance. Let's take money out of the equation. It's all about righteousness. It's all about living order to God's law. Money is secondary to the conversation. It's ancillary. At best, it's just this kind of off to the side thing. It's better to be righteous. Your life will be better ordered, will be more enjoyable, will be filled with more blessing, and will function correctly. It will function better with righteousness than with money. Which is amazing because we're Americans and we think every problem is smaller if you have enough money. I mean, that's what we've been trained to think, that if you've got enough money, you can solve any problem. Not according to the scriptures. So already we have this portrait of the gospel in Proverbs already so abundantly clear. Look, you can't save yourself. It has to be Christ. And there are blessings that come from being in his kingdom. And then he's going to give us an object lesson. And it's an object lesson that many of us are probably not going to initially relate to. Again, unless you grew up in England or you have Canadian blood or things of the sort. He jumps to the illustration of a king. And so for maybe some of us, it might be better for us to think about the president. And either, depending on your political persuasion, think about this president or the previous president or all presidents, depending on what your political inclination is. And he uses the illustration of a king as this great contrast to say, look, you deal with a God who is sovereign, But for many of you in ancient Israel, you deal with a king that's sovereign. And your king is wicked. I mean, maybe not entirely for some of them. Some of them are God's people and their rule is not entirely bad, but they fall short constantly. And I love how it starts with this overwhelming, profound, all the time sort of statement in verse 10. An oracle is on the lips of the king. His mouth does not sin in judgment. Can you imagine, actually, if you went into the, the social political sphere today and said this about our president? I mean, just look at it. An oracle is on the lips of President Trump. His mouth does not sin in judgment. If you tried to hold that in, in the, the larger social American sphere, you would be laughed out of town. 
or loved, depending on which side of the aisle you were talking to. I think it's actually shown to be this great sort of contrast to say, look, you live with a God who's sovereign over you, but he's righteous. And he sent his son to be your king, and he's righteous. Use that as a contrast to think about all of the other situations that you live with. You live with kings that are fallen. They're parts and pieces to their rule and their reign that's just not good or good. He deals with their their justice next. They deal with the nature of their throne, deals with their lips and their tongue. It deals with their temper and their wrath. The king is this great illustration of how we have control over us all the time. Though we just don't like to admit it. In fact, actually, that's, I think, probably been the thing that's been the most fun to watch over the last decade or so, maybe 15 years, in American politics, is how much we reject the idea of monarchy, but how absolutely foaming at the mouth, insanely crazy we get when a president makes uh, some sort of official ruling that we don't like. Man, that sounds crazy like monarchy to me, where he makes a decision, and whether you like it or not, you have to live with it. And you know what? It doesn't matter which president. He's fallen. He lives under the reign of Adam. He's not perfect. And in doing so, every aspect of his reign, every aspect of his service to the country, every aspect of his term is a reminder and a a, a portrait to point back to God's reign over us. And the chapter ends with kind of a, a really hands-in-the-dirt, tactile, tangible sort of consequence for this. If God is sovereign over all of creation, if he is the one who determines how cre- uh, people are to live, how his creatures are supposed to live, if he knows your heart, he knows your ways, he knows your mind, he also knows what's right and wrong because he invented it, If he is the author of salvation and has constructed it in a certain sort of pattern, in a certain way that is designed to operate correctly, then there are two acceptable responses to that. One good, one bad. One is a total rejection of it. Verse 25 is the the primary kind of central theme here. There is a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way to death. You don't like God being king over creation? Great. You don't have to serve him. That's your privilege. That's the path that you can choose. You are allowed to walk that path. There is a problem, though. It ends in death. And again, we think about this in the political sphere. Maybe our current culture might not be the best time to illustrate this, but if you didn't like the government and you decided to rebel against the government, to hate the government, and to work aggressively against the government for the entirety of your life, that has historically been called a traitor. And what happens to traitors? They are killed by said government. That's effectively what this is describing as a person who says to God, I hate you. I'm going to work aggressively against you. And there's going to be a whole plethora of ways in which I'm going to do that. 
Verse 18, it's going to be pride. It's going to be through a haughty spirit. Verse 19, again, a haughty spirit, uh, dividing spoil with the proud, uh, those gains that have been gotten a bit illicitly because they've been done incorrectly. Verse 27, jumping ahead, one who plots evil, a person whose speech is like scorching fire. 28, a dishonest man that's spreading strife, a whisperer who separates close friends. And again, I'm actually going to talk about this one for just a second. Because this is one that in the South, this is what you were taught, this is the good way to behave. Again, if you were raised in a deep Southern home, overt conflict is always bad. Covert conflict is the only way to have it. And so it's always done behind the scenes, behind closed doors, and never with the person it's supposed to be done with. Many of you, your family, if person A is angry at relative B, it is relative A's job to talk to relative C, who will then talk to relative D, who will then talk to relative E, who will talk to relative F, who will talk to relative G, who will then talk to relative B. It has to go through the U. And it's amazing because all that does is breed more and more conflict. And it's usually done with little whisperings, and it gets worse and it gets worse. Verse 29, a man of violence. Those that persuade others to follow in their evil. Verse 30, it's not saying that winking is bad. It's that wink, wink, nudge, nudge, know what I mean? If you know the old skit. It's the, the, the persuasion, like, hey, let's go do this thing. <laughs> Come on. Like, let's, let, let's, let's go do evil together. It's an attempt to persuade and to bring in. The path number one, you want to declare war against God? That's fine. That's your prerogative. It will lead to death. It will. There's no ways around that. Path two is to submit yourself to the Lord. To receive the salvation that he offers. To be transformed by his loving kindness. To receive his steadfast love and faithfulness in the Lord Jesus. To be regenerated and in doing so to be transformed and then to live a life of submission. Verses 20 through 24, 31 through 32. Uh, 20 gives thought to God's word. Trust in God. 21, a discerning heart. Sweetness of speech. Not flame speech. (laughs) Not incendiary. Sweetness. 23, judicious speech. 24, gracious words. 31, my favorite verse. Gray hair and crown of glory is gained in a righteous life. Part of what it means there is uh, you live a righteous life, God preserves you. I've said it jokingly, but you you don't end up on the terrible talk shows by obeying the Ten Commandments. Nobody goes on Jerry Springer because they've obeyed all the Ten Commandments. You, you don't do that. Uh, using another internet link, you don't end up on the Darwin Awards for obeying the Ten Commandments. You don't do dumb stuff that makes it in the news when you're following the Ten Commandments. Likewise, you're going to live long enough to have gray hair. Not always. Remember, this is the often category. It's often because you're living according to God's law. 32. Slow to anger. I love this. You slow to anger is better than the mighty. He who has control over his own spirit is, uh, is better than he who takes a city. 
you think about it, again from the stories of old. You have all the, the old ancient Greek stories about these great you know warriors that would go in and you know single handedly kind of conquer a city or Samson or something of the sort from uh, you know from the Old Testament. And here, what's it saying? A person who can control their own attitude is infinitely more powerful. I love that. Two paths. Now, again, not, neither of them redeem you. Neither of them save you. These are the two paths that are the outworking of that salvation that God has given. And it all falls under one category. Verse 33, the lot is cast into the lap and its every decision is from the Lord. You think you're your own boss, don't you? That's cute. God is sovereign over all of your life. And no matter how much you try to hate him or how much you try to serve him, he's still in charge. And nothing's going to upset that. Nothing can frustrate that. Nothing can upset his kingdom. We're not big enough to ruin his day. He's God. And he's decided in his mercy to love us and to meet us in the meal. Let me uh, close in prayer. Father in heaven, we ask your blessing upon us now as we feast with you. Thank you for your word. In Jesus' name, amen.